Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Well, last week, we entered the Garden of Gethsemane in a very intimate and intense setting. We looked into the heart and soul of Jesus. And uh, we came face to face, as he came face to face, with the horror of what was before him, especially as it related to separation from God. Said it was sort of a death before the death. So this was a very critical moment of the passion, which is what we are looking at. And uh, we saw kind of how Jesus handled himself in that crisis. We'll see a little bit more of that here in a moment. But we also uh, looked a little bit, we see in this setting, the disciples, we get a little glimpse into how they handled this crisis. And we're sort of given a study of human weakness, really. And we said there were two verses said in here. Jesus makes two comments in here. Jesus speaks And the first thing he says is is his prayer, Abba, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And that's Jesus revealing his soul. And then you see him saying something about the disciples where he says to them this, stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So these are really the two ideas that come out of this. We looked into the heart of Jesus, and then we look at what the disciples do. So what does Jesus do, and what do the disciples do in this moment of crisis, and then what does that have to do with us? What does it mean to us? So that's what we're doing. And the first part of this, of course, is what Jesus is praying right here. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me yet not what I will, but what you will. So here's Jesus in this moment of crisis, which we talked about last week. So I only want to focus on what Jesus did in it. And there's just a couple of things to notice in here. Uh, The first thing is he says, Abba, and very rarely does Jesus uh, put Aramaic and Greek together, Father and and Abba. But they come together, and Abba really is just a very, very intimate term. It's a very... uh, very, very personal term. It's about as close as you can imagine. Uh, so it speaks to connection and intimacy. So the first thing we would say about Jesus's prayer, this is a very intimate one. This is a very, very personal conversation. The second thing you notice about it, he says, Father, and that suggests dependency because I'm dependent on him. He cares for me. That's also expressed, though, in the comment, all things are possible for you. I know what you are capable of. So we're looking at the elements of Jesus' prayer. The first one is it's intimate. The second one is it's dependent. Paul Miller said in his book on prayer, if you're not praying, then you're quietly confident you can handle life on your own. And it's one of the most convicting statements. Jesus is here telling us He's telling God, I know you're the capable one. I know, and I need you. 
And then the third thing he does here is he says, not my will, but yours. A lot of times when we pray, we think it's all about the ask. Sometimes it's about surrendering your will to God's. In fact, more often than not, it's about surrendering your will to God's. And Jesus does the third thing, which is he surrenders. And he does it in prayer. And I think what we learn here is that this is not a fixed world. Jesus is telling us God, it's God's world. And the reason I'm coming to him is because this is his place, it's his plan, he's running things, and I desperately need his will to be accomplished in my life. So what we learn here about prayer is for prayer, for Jesus, prayer wasn't a duty. It was just how he related to God was how he connected himself to the Father. Jesus only knew himself in relation to the Father. So no part of his life, not his intimate side, not his dependent side, nor his will, could he disassociate from God. And in prayer is where they all sort of came together. Now, uh, Edward Clowney says this about prayer. The Bible does not present an art of prayer. It presents the God of prayer. So when I, this is always a danger, when I tell you, you know, your prayer ought to, number one, it ought to be intimate. Number two, it ought to be dependent. Number three, it ought to be. Number four, it ought to be. And we got, this is how you pray. Hey, listen, those are things that come into play because of who God is. They're not a plan. They're how you relate to God. You relate to Him intimately. You relate to Him dependently. And you've got to surrender your will to His. This is just what it means to be connected to God. So prayer is not just this external thing. Uh, uh, it doesn't exist in a world of its own, your prayers. My prayers, they don't just exist in a world of their own. We're in dialogue with a person who has a will. Every time you pray, you think, God has a will, and I've got to center myself in that will. It's how my life takes on the quality of eternity. When what he wants up there actually happens in me down here. And that's why when Tim Keller says this, I'll let you see another quote about prayer. He says, failure to pray then is not merely to break some religious rule. It's just a failure to treat God as God. So right now, if you think about your life and you say, I'm not praying, you might think, well, I guess I'm just a lazy person. Well, that may be. but it's really about you're not relating to God the way God wants to be related to. Something about our spiritual lives is amiss, and you can assess it by looking at prayer. How do I think of God and relate to God? Prayer is a way. And here Jesus is in the greatest crisis of his life, and prayer is his lifeline. It's his connection to eternity. The worst possible thing that can happen down here is about to happen. 
But he's connected to it in a way, to an eternal reality beyond this. That's, that's just incredible to see. That's available to all of us if we seek him that way. So that's what Jesus does. And i got to tell you, in this text, we're going to see right now, as we look at really the second part of this, is that Jesus' is clear concern that we do the same thing. In other words, it might be really easy to say, well, that's Jesus, and he's got this unique relationship to God, and th- th- that's not how I see myself. Well, this is Jesus' clear concern for you. And I want to show you how. I don't want to let this text show you how. Here's the whole text. Remember, sometimes we like to look at the whole text and put color in it because then you start to see activity and movement within the text and what's happening. And you can see the color in it where Jesus is praying up top, but you got this prayer, this soul prayer here, and then you got all this color down here and this activity and movement. That's all I want the color to distinguish for you. The second half of this thing, when we get to the discipleship part, disciples. It's a lot more frantic activity. Now, why is that? Why is it when you get to verse 37 that this activity down here just radically changes? And you see see Jesus doing something uh, in this text. A couple of things come to mind. You see him shuttling back and forth. He comes to Peter. He goes away, and then he comes back to Peter. Then he goes the way of pray again, and he comes back. Then he goes away again, and he comes back again three times. He goes off to pray three times. He comes back to the disciples three times. And you can see as we get farther and closer and closer, or uh, uh, further and further into the text, it focuses less on Jesus' prayer and more on their lack of it. Because the first thing we see is Jesus prays. We see what he prays in verse 36. Then we see... Uh, that it doesn't necessarily tell you. Look, it says he just, look, Jesus goes off again. He just prays the same thing. Mark doesn't repeat it. He could repeat it, but he just says, oh yeah, Jesus went off again, prayed the same thing, and then he hurried back. So the focus isn't on his prayer now. It's, the, it's on the fact that he's got to get back to the disciples. And then you see in the next one, when he came again, it doesn't even tell you that he went again and prayed. You just assume it because he comes back again. That means there's less focus on what Jesus said now. We saw what Jesus really needed to say. Now there's less focus on what he needed to say and more on what the disciples needed to hear. And I want you to think of this, too, because this is amazing. So here's Jesus in this crisis. And all of the frantic activity here is his concern for us. It's his concern for the disciples, that they learn what he is doing. And this is what he says to them. And I, in fact, I have the, the last set of verses here. He comes to Peter and he says this right here. Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? This is his first trip back to them because he's shuttling back and forth. And the word here, it's translated couldn't, but it means it literally says, don't you have the strength? Strength is the word. And that's important when you contrast it with the word weak. Because in this text, the issue is about 
Are you strong or weak? That's just why Jesus is shuttling back and forth, because that's the issue. Uh, and, and, and you almost get the sense when you read it, don't you hear in this? Like, don't you hear, you really should be able to do this. This isn't complicated. Hey, look, there's going to be a lot of hard things you're going to be called upon to do. This shouldn't be one of them. And then look what Jesus says. I, I love how this goes because he goes, when you get to verses 41 and let's see where we're at here, right here. So he comes a third time and he says to them, are you still sleeping? You're still sleeping. And then he says, enough. That's enough. That's it. Time's up. Because the hour has come. That means game time. It's game time now. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners, and then look, get up and let's go. So, time's out. It's game time. Time to move. Time to get going. Time to do something. And just by reading the text, you know Who's ready and who isn't, right? Who's ready for game time and who isn't? Jesus is clearly ready. The disciples are not ready. Jesus has prayed. They have not. He's about to carry out God's will. They will not. Sleep in this text, which you see all over here. All right, stay awake and sleeping, all of these terms tell you. We've already seen them in Mark 13. Remember in chapter 36 where Jesus says, watch, stay awake, be alert. When I come, be ready. He's already told them this. So sleep means to be unprepared at game time. It means to be unprepared in the crisis, unprepared in the heat of the moment. Dallas Willard says this, the spiritual life is a life of interaction with a personal God, and it is pure delusion to suppose that it can be carried on sloppily. The will to do his will can only be carried into reality as we take measures to be ready and able to meet and draw upon him in our actions. In other words, if you're sleeping when you ought to be doing preparing, you're not going to be ready when game time happens. And so you see the con, you see this issue of spirit and flesh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's what Jesus is essentially saying. It's not complicated. Good intentions are not enough. Peter has been full of good intentions, but they are not enough. And here is the important part of the spiritual life. The, the spiritual, there's an internal part of the spiritual life, but there's also an external part of the spiritual life. In other words, what you're thinking on the inside, what you want on the inside has to come to fruition for the, for the matter to be concluded, 
for God's will to be carried out, to want it to be carried out, isn't enough. Your body has to be able to come through in actuality, in reality, for God's will to make its way into everyday life. I mean, if your hand doesn't do what your heart wants it to, then God's will didn't get accomplished in your life. That's what he's saying. Your body is key to that. Because your body has to carry it out. Your actions, our actions are physical. Our life is a bodily life. And so it's got to come through physically. It's not just inward. What does Paul say in Romans 12? Think about it in this light, in light of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, you've got to present your body as a sacrifice. I don't need this great internal world in you only. In fact, he's going to say down here, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the internal matters, but your body's going to have to sacrifice something for the internal to become reality. That means you need your body too. Spirit, the spiritual life is not just good intentions. They've got to be carried out in your body. And so he goes on to say this. Spirituality, this is a great, just let this sink in. Spirituality in human beings is not an extra or superior mode of existence. It's not a hidden stream of separate reality, a separate life running parallel to our bodily existence, It does not consist of special inward acts, even though it has an inner aspect. It is rather a relationship of our embodied selves to God that has the natural and irrepressible effect of making us alive to the kingdom of God here and now in the material world. In other words, what we think of as spiritually, something you can't see, something ethereal, has got to make its way into you, and then it's got to be lived out. That's spirituality. When you first come to Christ, depending on when you do, you got a lot of things that you used to do, a lot of ways that you used to be, a lot of mindset, a lot of habits, a lot of things you did instinctively you didn't even know you did. You know how sometimes somebody will say to you, what, what's that look on your face? And you go, what look? You don't even know what the look is. That's the look you have when certain things happen to you. When you get upset, that's the look you get. That's your natural impulse. You've been doing it for years. That's why that same word comes out of your mouth at the same time, because it's a habit and an impulse that you've said it for many years. You don't even, sometimes you don't even hear yourself say it. Wives are good at finding all this stuff and pointing that out. Yeah, yeah, that, that look and that word. That's why, remember in screw tape letters, when C.S. Lewis uh, is writing, a, it's basically a beautiful parable. It's a picture of screw t- Uncle Screwtape is a, is, is a senior demon, and he's training a demon by the name of Wormwood. And Wormwood has the task 
of a particular human being he's trying to keep from becoming a Christian. They call those people patients. Your patient. Wormwood, how are you doing with your patient? Well, this patient becomes a Christian, and Wormwood has to come tell Screwtape that he couldn't keep him from becoming a Christian. And he's sad. Uncle Screwtape, I'm really sorry I couldn't keep him from coming to Christ. And here's what Screwtape says to him. Actually, I have that quote here for you. Let's see where it is. There's no need to despair. He gets upset at first. He says, but nevertheless, let's, let's, just, let's, let's take a step back, and here's what he says. There's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp. That's God's camp. And are now back with us. Yeah, they went in for a little while, and they came right back. Why? Here's why. All the habits of the patient both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Because they still have the same impulses they've always had, they still have all the natural responses, they automatically keep doing the things that they shouldn't do. In fact, uh, you know what's going to happen as soon as they get out of this garden where Peter has boasted that he is going to, he is going to die with Jesus? As soon as they get out of this garden, and the, we'll see it next week in the arrest, you know what Peter's going to do instinctively when the guards come to get Jesus? They're literally going to grab, he's literally going to grab a sword, and he's going to take off somebody's ear. Because in a moment of crisis, that's what Peter does. He responds impulsively. He responds angrily. He responds, this is... This way. You know what he does naturally? He reaches for the sword. He reaches for the sword. He's still got the same bodily impulses. He's still got the natural, automatic responses. They haven't changed in him. And part of the reason is because he didn't have that internal thing happening. He wasn't prepared. And then when game time came, Peter did just the opposite of what Jesus wanted him to do. His intentions were good, his spirit was willing, but his flesh did what it always does. He did what it always does. Now, here's the thing about your flesh and the way you do things. Well, that's just how I do them. That's me. They're just instinctive. And there's a lot of ways you could justify what Peter did. Well, that's my friend, and I'm sticking up for him. How many other ways could you justify Peter's actions? Well, this is, in, this is not justice, and I won't stand for it. Listen, we justify a lot of our habits and natural impulses. They seem right in the kind of world we live in, where you just can't get run over. So sometimes you got to reach in your sort of worldly arsenal bag and respond like this. That's what you have to do. And, and even when it feels right, seems right in the world we live in, here Jesus is telling Peter, that is not the response I wanted from you in this moment. But Peter wasn't prepared to surrender his will to God's. 
and make it a reality with his body. So, as we think about that, I just want to spend just a few minutes saying, well, what does that mean for us today, right now? And how should I be thinking about my own spiritual life? Well, here's the first thing that I think is really important. The first thing is, what the disciples don't have here is a substantial spiritual inner life. They have no inner spiritual, nothing substantial at all about their inner spiritual life. I'm just going to say a couple things about that, and then I want to use an illustration in the middle of this so we can come to life for us. Uh, You've got to develop some private, some substantial private time alone with God. Something probably most of us in here find difficult. It's very difficult. But we've got to follow Jesus' pattern to find intimacy with God, find dependence on God, and find surrender in God in our private worlds. Remember when Jesus talked about the closet and the prayer closet? See, there's got to be, you got to have closet time. Otherwise, you're going to respond the way you always do. So there's got to be this, it's not visible to other people. There, is where you, you, you hammer, literally hammer internally your will so that it is, becomes God's. Now, you say, what does that look like? Well, we're seeing Jesus do it. But I want to show you four things um, that you do in your life spiritually. This is kind of what they look like. This represents really the inside. This is what we're talking about right now, a substantial inner life. This represents sort of the outside, and we'll look at that in a moment. But let's look at these first two. This is the inner life. You're not going to see this in most people. Most of the time, you, you won't see this. You might have a conversation. If you have a close friend, they might share you. But there's sort of a, a, a confession. And the confession is you see sort of Jesus doing it in his text. You see him struggling with something in his life, like the cross that's coming up. For you, it might be lust. For you, it might be, I'm having a hard time loving my spouse. What is it? Jesus has brought it to his Father. Something that now you and I look back on and go, that's not even, the, th the thought that the cross wouldn't happen. Jesus is bringing that up as a reality because it's something he's facing that's difficult. The first thing he does is he confesses that reality. God you need to know, you need to know, hear me say it privately with us, just you and me, I'm really having a hard time loving my spouse. There's someone in my life that I hate. I'm bearing a burden right now. I think I'm going to die under it, and I'm very tempted to take what isn't mine 
That's what I mean by confess. So you got, you got to run that to dad. And if you're not running that to dad, then you got it, and you'll handle it. And you know what you'll do? You'll do just what you've always done. You'll just pull the sword in the moment. I'm having a hard time eating right, Lord. Something in me. It's time I talk to you about it. I'm having a... Hey, whatever it is, I keep getting told that I'm the wet blanket on the party. I keep getting told that by people. I keep telling them they're crazy. But I'm the miserable one. Lord, I, I got to do something about that. That's the confess. Then the express. What did Jesus say? But you know what I really want, Lord, is to do what you want me to. That's what Jesus expresses. What I really want, Lord, is to do what you want me to. Show me what that is. That's the express part. This is all happening. Nobody sees this. Nobody sees this in you. This is your closet world. God, what I really want is to love him or her the way I should. What I really want is to come through for you. And you express that. That's the internal side. The disciples had none of it. They slept. They just were unprepared internally. And they thought that just, hey, when the moment comes, I'll be who I'm supposed to be. That's not how it works in anything. You, we wonder why we fail the same way usually all the time. Internally, if you haven't taken that thing to God, whatever it is, so this is what's happening internally to you. Are you having this dynamic going on in your life? where you actually tell God what, what the thing is in you, and then you actually express what you really want to see happen in your life? Then there is the outside. And what, how does this thing start to make its way out? So let's say you get up from that prayer that you're going to pray tonight or tomorrow morning, and you go, okay, well, what do I do now? Okay, the first thing that just ought to naturally happen because you're asking God to show you what, what you should be is you've got to go to, your, go to his word and find something that impresses upon you spiritually what that is. It's probably a verse. And it doesn't matter what your topic is. It doesn't matter what your issue is. You could read something. And you could get those verses. And I'm going to tell you, once you get it from here to here, listen, if you don't want this dynamic in your life, because a lot of people don't pray because they're afraid of changing, because this is what happens. It's not just that they're sleepy or undisciplined. They don't really want to become a different person. That's too complicated. I like who I am. Well, those things will work against you. But by the time you get to where you're, you have written down a verse 
and you carry it on a three-by-five card, or it's on a sticky note in your car, so you see it every day. I have them on my mirror in my bathroom. The one that I need to hear. Just let it come out, and then you let God's Word start to sink in, and you just let it. And now I've memorized these verses because I see them every day now for months. And they're just, they're just reminding me of how I should be thinking. That's the express impress part. It means to fix your mind deeply on what he wants. Just Scripture. And then look at the egress. Egress is what, you know what egress means? I looked it up. You know, we know what ingress and egress means. You know, you're in and out. All egress means is out. But if you go to the dictionary and you look at it, there's lots of words that come up for it. Look at these words. Exit, departure, escape, outlet. In other words, what you want to see happen and you've learned what should happen now actually comes out of your life. (gasps) I did it. It's that. That's egress. Is it actually making its way out of your life? You say, what do I need to do to make sure my hand is ready to do what it should do? So, one of the things that I'm working on, and there's a, a big backstory to this that I'm not going to give you, because I don't have time. It's being more generous. And there's lots of reasons but that's an issue for me. And so, I'm working through it. And I've done all of these things. And you say, well, what what would it look like for it to start coming out here? Because this could happen in anything in your life that you gotta start practicing it. This is, hey, let me just say something. This is not about tithing, okay, which, or giving a a portion of your income to God, because I do that. Can I just say something to you? Tithers can be some of the most stingy people. Because they love the law. Boy, I've given my amount and I'm done. Well, the problem is, that means you've just basically turned the knob on love, and now no more love trickles out of you because you've already done your part. Now, you haven't stopped being generous. And so, I have that part. I need more. Again, backstory. That's from Men's Breakfast Saturday morning. So, what do I have to start doing then? Because let me just say something to you. You can read Scripture all day long about being generous until you, until you start actually doing it. So what do you do? One of the great things to do in this particular category is start secretly giving away money and nobody knows it but you. So it's not about, it's not about you being the guy. Just start secretly giving away money to needy people that you run into. How many of you never carry cash? And you know what? That's what I was doing. But see, then you can't give away money secretly, and you can't give it in the spur of the moment all the time. That's a downside for believers that God could grab a hold of your collar 
in a grocery store or a restaurant. See, what I did was I just turned the tap off. I got to I got to carry some cash now in order to give it. See, my, I got to start giving it away. So I've come up with a few things that I can do to help me do that. Now, if any dollars come my way, you know how you get freaky dollars every now and then? Just dollars you didn't count on. Do you know that this week in the mail, I got a check for $100? There's backstory to this too. Because I'm going to tell you, once you start doing this, God will just keep giving you little things and say, do it again. Do it again. It's amazing. It's amazing. So I get this $100 out of nowhere. I go, what is this? It was from a university that one of my sons applied to four years ago. They're now sending me the $100 back. <laughs> Literally. I go, the only reason they're doing that is because God knows that I've said to him, any dollars that trickle to me, I've got to find a way to get away from me. I got to find a way. And you know the habit, if you don't have the habit of getting it and then doing this with it, you have the habit of doing this with it. This is what your hands will do. Oh, I got a hundred bucks. I'm going to party. I'm going to Amazon. Because that's what you always do. But not if you're doing this. Now I've got to get my body to start doing it. See, that's part two. The first one is you've got to have this substantial inner life. The second one is you've got to have this physical response to something. So let's think of a few of these things. Uh, what if you're, what if, you, and by the way, let me, let me finish this thought first. All of a sudden, there comes the feeling of fulfillment and joy in giving that you didn't know or have. And now you're cooperating with God in a way you haven't. And it's fun. It's more fun to give it out. And I'm having fun and finding joy in that instead of stashing it. But God is just working with me on that. You take the thing. So let's say yours is, I have a critical tongue. Like, I'm a critical person. And everybody know, in my life knows it. I can tear down anything. So you go to maybe Ephesians 4 or Proverb or something, and you go, I need to become, I need to have cleaner things coming out of my mouth. And then you say, here's the five things that I'm going to... Here's things I'm going to say to people today that are not negative. And you're going to find yourself encouraging people, and you're going to find joy in encouraging people instead of dragging them down into the mud. It's got to come out for God's will to be accomplished. It's got to come out. You know, when, I was, uh, when my son Anthony was a kid, when he was little, he was the first seven-year-old to get a black belt in Taekwondo. And I helped him through every single bit of that. We would go together. I learned all the movements from white to black to help him. I never did any of the movements. I knew them all. 
so that if I watched him do it, I could say, ah, stop right there. You forgot to do the other thing. And when he got his black belt, I'm sitting there with Gail, and he's going through this very difficult routine, and I'm sitting there literally going, as he's doing it. And Gail looks over at me and she goes, you're a black belt. (laughs) Yeah, you laugh at that. Because you know that in the heat of the moment, it would be useless to me. Because it's not instinctive. You know, the black belts I know and you know They do it without thinking. They've killed you twice in their mind before you died. Okay? They decide how bad they're going to hurt you in the middle of the fight. See, so many of us are black belts. We know the Bible, we've prayed, go to church. But it never instinctively becomes who we are. And Jesus said, what about anger? You know what you got to do when you get to egress? After you've already memorized some verses on anger, which there's plenty, by the way. You got to now start forgiving people. You got to find, you view traffic as practice. (laughs) Traffic is practice. You literally come unglued in traffic. That's your natural response and reaction. Then you're going to develop that habit. And every time you get in the heat of the moment, that's going to be your response. And you know what the problem is? It feels so right. They deserved it. Just like Peter's sword. I could give you five good reasons why that guy deserved to have his head cut off instead of his ear. That would sound so good in a world like ours. But Jesus, but it isn't what I want. And see, here's the thing that's happening here that ought to be said in your life. I no longer want the world's ways or motivations to dictate my life. I no longer want the world's ways or motivations to dictate my life. Well, if you don't, you can say that all day long. You can leave here with great positive thinking. You're going to do what you always do unless you now walk through some process in your life. And by the way, I hate coming up with this because you'll turn it into law and you go, well, I confessed and then I expressed and then I impressed, but it didn't egress. And you'll go, well, I tried it and it didn't work. It's not about a system. It's just about this dynamic is the way it has to work in your life. But if you're not actually physically doing something to pull off what God is expecting of you, then the spirituality hasn't met. Then it hasn't become who you are. Something's missing. So, I mean, I've said that about everyone. I got 50 illustrations of that, but I guess... That's enough. So we have this. Let me just close with these two thoughts. Here's our vision statement as a church. 
sort of peeled it out here just a few times in January. We're going to look at it closer. But look what it says. We want to be a church where every person has an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the kind Jesus had with God in the garden. That kind of intimate relationship. That leads to a, an eternal kind of living right now in my everyday life. Look what he says. So that God's will and ways are actually, this is the word I wanted in there, but nobody would let me put it in, get carried out in my everyday life, my community, and my world. In other words, it's, it becomes, it gets, it, it egresses, it exits out of me. It's an outlet. It's a departure. God's will actually comes through me. What you see in the garden and what you see fulfilled in the cross is Jesus cooperating with God literally and physically. And if your body is constantly saying, constantly doing, moving the way it has always moved, then you're never going to get to this place here and this vision just becomes pie in the sky and it never really happens. But it can actually happen in everybody's life here if they'll have a substantial internal reality and they'll let it come out of their life and they'll find ways. You find ways to practice being what you want to be in the heat of the moment. So, another, if I close with this thought from Dallas Willard. He says, the general human failing is to want what is important, but at the same time not commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right in the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And then this last line in his thing I actually have up here so you could leave with it and maybe memorize it because it's been one of my favorites for years. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it possible. How many would you love to be in good enough shape to do an Iron Man? I mean, who in here wouldn't want to be at least in that good a shape? You never have to do one. But what if you were in good enough shape to do it? We had a, had a lady come up to me Sunday. She's a gal in our church who's just, even though she's a woman, she's an iron man, okay? She is just incredible athlete. And so last week, two weeks ago, she did one, and it was a two-and-a-half-mile swim. It was a... Uh, 75-mile bike ride and a 20-mile run in nine-and-a-half hours straight. I don't want to drive that far. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to drive that far. But you know what most of us say? Boy, I'll tell you what. If someone grabbed me by the collar and pulled me up to a starting line right now and said, you have to do that, what would happen? We would all die. We couldn't do it. We know we couldn't do it. Why could she? Do you know how much back work? Do you know how much in the wee hours in the dark I've seen her running? And I know where she lives. 
And to me, she seems quite far from home <laughs> without a vehicle. She's preparing for that race. If the spiritual life seems like an Iron Man to you, it's only that way because you haven't put in the back work. That only comes because you love Jesus. It's not because you're great. It's not because you're a great athlete. It's because you love him so much that you want to do what he wants you to do. And now you're prepared to do it. Father, thank you for your word. Challenge us. You have. You challenged us today. Help these things to come through our lives. Lord, what we want, what we long for is for your life to actually come through ours. So it takes on the quality of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.